0: Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Now, this letter was written to Christians across several Roman provinces, now in the north and west of modern Turkey. And it's an encouragement to them and to all of us to do what is right, even in the face of adversity. Dear friends, It should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner so then those who suffer according to god's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good this is the word of the lord
1: thanks karina good morning everyone my name is prash i'm the uh, senior minister here very warm welcome if you're new or visiting, it's lovely to see some um, new faces and faces of some of our congregation members returning after the, our um, COVID season. Not that that's fully over. Uh, if you are new this morning or you're joining us, uh, you're joining us at the end of a series on the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, written by the Apostle. We've got two weeks this week and next week, and then we're going to spend a few weeks preparing for Christmas. And... Um, But let me pray for us as we reflect on that that part of the the letter that was just read for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that um, by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us, make us more like the Lord Jesus, and draw us to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard the question, if you were stuck on a desert island, what are the three things that you would bring? What are the three things? Uh, Perhaps you've been in in some kind of group and it's been the icebreaker question. Um, Perhaps it's it's just you were in a youth group once and that was the question. It's a really interesting question. I actually don't really care that much what your answer is. I mean, tell the person next to you, of course, at some opportune time. Not during my sermon, of course. Um, But I think it's a really interesting question, isn't it? What, What would you bring with you if you had if you're stuck on a desert island, it, the, the idea that you have to mitigate your hardship, mitigate your, uh, your suffering, your wilderness experience, your desert island experience. And I do wonder if maybe the, the answer that we give is, is also a really interesting insight, actually, the thing that we would bring. What is it that would mitigate our hardship? Now, I think hardship, suffering, suffering, It's always been a question, actually, that people have grappled with as they think about their spiritual welfare and and as they think about their relationship to the, the spiritual things, to God, the question of suffering and hardship is a question that people are constantly grappling with. How does the reality of God and suffering interact together? And in this morning's passage, Peter is having his last... Well, one of his last cracks at it in this letter he's been spending a bit of time reflecting on it from different angles and with different focus but this morning he uh, in this morning's passage he it's his last rounding up of it and he spends a lot of time thinking about the question of suffering and I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about that as well what is really interesting actually about the passage this morning is that what it's going to say about suffering and hardship is very different actually to what most people would think a think the bible would say but be think about suffering and i want us to reflect on that and be challenged by that and it starts right at the beginning look at verse 12 the first verse dear friends do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you do not be surprised you've we've gone one or two words into the reading and there is this automatic challenge to us. Don't be surprised that hardship and suffering has come into your life. Don't be surprised. This is, uh, this is such a, a, a great insight into the way the Bible thinks about suffering and hardship. You might expect the Bible to be a book that when you open it has got lots of good news because that's of course what we talk about. We think of the gospel as good news. And so you think the Bible's just got lots of good things, lots of promises to say. But interestingly, at the same time, the Bible has a constant, it has a constant message that suffering and hardship is a real presence in life. From Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, the third chapter, the 17th verse, suffering and hardship is part of the story of the Bible. Part of the story of the Bible. You know, interestingly, Jesus in the Gospels, there's this moment where he goes in John, he goes to meet his friend who's just died. And you might know it, he raises him from the dead. His name is Lazarus. It's an extraordinary moment. Jesus has the power to raise a man from the dead. But what actually is even more interesting is how that moment unfurls. Because Jesus turns up at Lazarus' tomb, obviously fully aware that he has the power to raise Lazarus because he's going to do it. And, of course, he's aware of who he is. But what does he do before he raises Lazarus? He weeps. He weeps. That is because suffering is real, even for Jesus. Even for one who can overturn suffering, suffering is real. Hardship is real in the, in the, in the, in the great picture of the Bible. Now, what's, what is interesting is that for most of us, we don't operate like that, actually. Most of us spend our life with an inherent assumption that things are actually always going to get better. That's that's just the way that our world is programmed. The reason why we find a pandemic in 2020 so hard to comprehend is that pandemics are things that happened in the Middle Ages. And hasn't the world got better? Hasn't it got better? We don't have a way of thinking about life which says that actually tomorrow could be a hard day, a devastating day. We have an inherent assumption, actually, that our lives should get more comfortable, not more difficult, culturally, but individually, too. Of course, that doesn't line up with reality. Here's what John Gray, John Gray's an atheist, actually, he's not a believer, but this is what he writes. He he writes, in comparison with the Genesis myth, he obviously reads Genesis as if it's just a big story, which, which I, I clearly don't, but he says, in comparison with the Genesis myth, the modern myth in which humanity is marching to a better future is mere superstition. As the Genesis story teaches, knowledge cannot save us from ourselves. So it's really interesting, the Bible says, suffering is real, your life will be hard, particularly if you're a Christian in this, the context of this passage that we're reading. But generally speaking, hardship, suffering is real, that is what is in store for your life. And that, that is in contrast with what's in store, what, what our modern kind of sensibilities and uh, approach to suffering is, which is to deny it or ignore that it exists. But the Bible says something even more interesting. Look at verse 12 again, how the verse continues. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening Peter doesn't just say that suffering... Sorry, Adam, I'm fiddling with my microphone. Sound, sound desk. Guys hate it when you do that. Peter says not just that you should expect suffering, but suffering has a purpose. He's probably, if you were here from the start of the series, in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he talked about how suffering has the capacity to refine you. the fire he he maybe he's thinking about in his time and place um, a, a practice that exists where you put you know silver or gold in a little pot and you put it in the fire and the heat melted it and then to the top rose all the impurities you scrape them off right that idea of suffering being this refining purposive experience anyway that's what Peter's continuing with here as he talks about suffering again he says hardship has the ability to test you, to to strip away all the things that are not real about you and right about you. Again, really interesting, because we don't have a way of thinking about suffering, generally speaking, where we just say, "That's, that's actually purposive, that has a reason, suffering seems purposeless, generally in our culture. I remember a time earlier in my life where I had a very significant moment of upheaval, I had plans for something. And it looked like those plans were just not going to happen. There's a very significant view I had of my life and what it would be. It all fell apart. And I spoke to one of my friends who was a believer. And um, he said to, you know, he, he, he sat with me and we talked and we talked. And eventually he said something to me. He said, this is the moment where the rubber hits the road in your faith. Where the rubber hits the road in your faith. What was really interesting about that was that at the moment he said that, it really clarified things for me. I mean, it didn't make it suddenly easy. I didn't understand exactly what I was meant to do. But it it took the anxiety, in a sense, out of that moment. That God was doing something, that there was something purposive in that moment, even if I couldn't fully understand it. Now the Bible's message is so important, you see, because if you live a life which just operates on the basis that there will be no suffering, if you just want to pretend that your life will always get better, if you just want to make your plans and your priorities on the basis that tomorrow will be a better day than today, what will happen, actually, is that you'll either be crushed or you'll become bitter. You see, how we deal with suffering will either make us bitter or better. Will either make us bitter or better. If you want to pretend that your life is going to be easy, the great risk actually is that when you meet suffering and hardship, you will just become a bitter person. But if you can take on what the Bible's saying about the reality of suffering and hardship and the purpose of suffering and hardship in your life, then you have a capacity to become, have a character that's rounded and deepened so the way that we think about hardship and suffering, this is so important for us because, hey, we moved to Willoughby to have a better life. So we're at risk, aren't we? We're at risk of approaching suffering in the wrong way and, and, and being on track to ultimately bitterness, not betterness. <laughs> bitterness, not betterness. So how do we deal with suffering? That's the question, I guess. If we accept the Bible's premise that suffering and hardship is real in life, but it can have a purpose, how do we deal with it? Well, what's interesting in this passage is that Peter is dealing with it, he's processing it, he's coming up with a way to think about it, but he has something in mind. There's a, there's a worldview or a structure to the way that he's thinking about it, and it has to do with his picture of God, his understanding of God. And again, this is where the Bible is very interesting, because it's saying something different to, to every other book that you will open in, to help you in life, which will give you some kind of pop psychology solution to your problems. The Bible's saying, actually, the way that you understand suffering and hardship, you deal with it, you, you, you move through it, actually, is with a very clear picture of who God is, of who God is. And there's two pictures that come out. The first is the picture of God as judge, Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So the picture here is of everyone actually coming before God, God's people, and those who've turned their back on God. This idea of God as the great ultimate judge. You now, as I say that, our automatic instinct is how can that possibly be a comfort in the midst of suffering? We're so conditioned to think of judgment as something that we'll have to just, we might have to go through, but certainly something that's fearful. But you have to remember the context in which Peter's writing to. He's writing to, as Karina said, a bunch of churches in West Asia, Christians who are isolated, and who Peter knows actually, are going to ultimately experience great deals of suffering and hardship because their emperor is now Nero. And history tells us of the horrific things that Nero did uh, against Christians at his time. Peter's preparing them for this. And at the heart of, of course, what Nero's doing is great levels of injustice. See, when we think about God as judge, it's unpalatable for us because we live in the leafy streets of the Lower North Shore where generally the greatest level of injustice we encounter is someone cut us off at the lights. But, But, you know, if... If your injustice is deeper and more profound and life-altering, then isn't the one thing you want a deep assurance that ultimately, actually, justice will be carried out? That there is someone capable of righting the wrongs? I mean, actually, even when you get cut off at the lights, you kind of hope that there's a cop around the corner, don't you? We all want justice. We all want justice. And God as judge actually is a great balm to that, that in moment of injustice that we might suffer, says Peter. And, you know, actually if you know that God is judge, what it helps you to do is to be patient in suffering and hardship. You don't have to take on, You don't have to take on the retribution and vengeance. You don't have to find yourself falling into violence to combat violence because you know that God will actually deal with things on the last day. If your hardship is hard now, remember that God will meet those who inflict injustice on you, is what Peter's saying. But it's not just God as judge. You see, there's another picture of God that emerges it's right in the last verse, verse 19. And uh, Peter says in verse 19 that God is the creator. God is the creator. He says, Commit yourself to a faithful creator. Because if, if knowing that God is judge allows you to be patient in suffering, sometimes what we actually need is to be humble in suffering. The Bible's constant message actually about hardship and suffering is that we don't understand it all. We don't have all the answers. There's a famous book in the Old Testament called Book of Job, which is an interaction between a, a person, Job, who experiences great hardship and suffering and God. And at first, Job is content, or he's able to deal with his suffering, but as it goes on, he starts to rail against God. Chapter after chapter after chapter, he accuses God of not knowing what he's doing, of being unjust himself. And finally, God answers him. And this is what God says in Job 38, one of the last chapters in the book. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And of course, God's point is, I'm the creator, I know everything. I was there when the very first thought of the world existed. What about you? And the challenge of Job and the scriptures is also that at times when we are in the midst of suffering and hardship, what we need to do is recognize who we are, that we're creatures. That actually we don't see everything, that God is the creator, that he has a unique perspective on life and hardship and difficulty. And part of our job is to humbly accept that. These are two pictures that are driving the way that Peter thinks about suffering. And when he brings them all together, he leaves us with one basic challenge about how we're to deal with times of hardship. He says, verse 19, commit to doing good. Commit to doing good now this is this is where i mean i'm telling you how the bible is telling us something so different to suffering about suffering to the world this is where it starts to really hit its pointy pointy part because you see what the passage is saying is saying this don't seek to minimize your suffering but to maximize your good see don't seek to minimize your suffering but seek to maximize your good that's really interesting Because when we go through times of hardship, our first thought is to self-protection, isn't it? We think, how will I get through this? What can I do? What can I cut out? What can I stop doing? What's my limits? What's my boundaries? I mean, boundaries are all important. Of course they're important. We have to recognize our createdness and our limitedness. But you know, our first instinct is, how can I minimize my suffering? But Peter is describing a totally different way to think about the moment of hardship. How can I maximize my good in this moment? What can I commit to doing that's good in spite of the difficulty of my life? You see, the Bible is painting a totally different picture of the way to do life. Everything we're taught now is about how can I make my life more comfortable? But the Bible is saying no. how can I make my life more of a blessing? How can I make my life? How can I commit to doing that in the midst of hardship? In the midst of hardship. My, um, uh, my wife, Emily, went to a book launch during the week. Uh, one of the lecturers at YouthWorks College just released a book talking about youth ministry uh, in the 1950s, post-war, in Sydney. And she interviewed a whole lot of people, and um, one of the people she interviewed was... Um, a young, well, she was at the time a young girl who became a Christian at a school, and she said when she became a Christian, she actually had to ask herself, one of the key questions she had to ask was, how am I willing to give up the, the possible academic benefit for becoming a Christian? Because she realised to follow Christ was to start to hand over her life in ways, which meant she couldn't invest as much time in her school and in her academic, in her academic life. I mean, she's just a teenager, but such a profound reflection. The life of Christ, following Christ, is a life of, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, taking the narrow road. Because broad is the road, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And each of us actually has to keep asking ourselves, if we follow Christ, if we follow Christ, are we willing to shift our mind from what we can do to minimise our suffering to maximising our good. Because that's actually what it looks like in this context of this passage, to take the, the narrow road rather than the broad, the broad way. What, what is, I think, even more interesting about this passage, though, is here's a passage all about suffering, all about the things that you will undergo, the injustices that other people will, will, will con, uh, convey on you, how to, how to get through that. But right in the middle of this passage, verse 15, do you see what Peter says? He says, if you should suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. This is really interesting because in the middle of a passage that's all about stealing us for dealing with suffering, Peter warns us, even in the midst of suffering, you have the capacity to suffer wrongly you actually have the capacity to suffer the wrong way. He's warning us, he's saying, be careful because in the midst of suffering and injustice, you might find that you have actually reversed the roles. You were the one being oppressed, you are now the one oppressing. You were the one who was the victim, but you are now the victimizer. We find that so hard to think of, how a victim could ever be a victimizer in a space. But Peter's warning us exactly about that. I mean, maybe it's not sociological. You don't suddenly, people don't look at you and think victim. But in your heart, you've turned things around. It's such an interesting list. I mean, murderer, thief, criminal, meddler. Gosh, that's so ordinary, isn't it? In the moment of suffering, does your self-righteousness, your anxiety make you a meddler? I think in this letter of 1 Peter, there's little moments where you see, you see the autobiographical nature of the, of the letter, where you sense that Peter's experiences as a disciple of Jesus, because if you're not aware, Peter was an apostle, and he, he spent three and a half years with Jesus. He did his ministry. He, he was one of the very first people to join Jesus. Right? And so there's just these moments where you read the letter and you think, I wonder if he's reflecting on that thing that happened in Jesus' life that he was part of. I wonder, as he, read, as he as I was reading this, I was thinking this week, I wonder if Peter was reflecting about a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has just been praying that prayer, you know, not my will but yours, Father. And then the crowd comes. The soldiers and the crowd come to arrest him in the dark. It's a complete injustice, a complete travesty. He's done nothing wrong, and they're about to drag him off, and ultimately he'll die at the cross. But this happens. In John, John 18, this happens. John tells us that Peter, in the moment, pulls out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. Malchus is the servant of the high priest. And, and almost immediately Jesus heals Malchus's ear. I do always wonder what, what Malchus thought after that moment. <laughs> there he is. He's feeling his ear again. moment it wasn't there. it's back there. Wow, that was amazing. Um, Peter, though, he must reflect on that. Here he is, you see, what's so interesting is here he is in a moment of great injustice. Of course, Jesus is about to be dragged off to what's a kangaroo court and be convicted of something he hasn't done. And in that moment, Peter, who's on the side of the victim, becomes the victimizer. He cuts off Malchus's ear. Maybe he just realizes how, how easy it is in the moment of suffering and sacrifice to actually make someone else suffer to make someone else suffer and so he warns us and i guess his warning is a reminder actually it's the reason why that whole myth of progress that we were talking about doesn't work is because our great problem is not sociological or technological we're not we're not just going to be better people because now we have better technology The problem is a deep heart issue which peter had and which the crowd has and which malchus has and and it means that when you're put in the pressure kiln of of suffering what comes out isn't always what you want actually it isn't always what you want so he has to warn us about this but you see instead this picture of suffering is not what we'd expect it's not rage against suffering it's not endure suffering even do you notice that it's not even just endure suffering. It says something very interesting. He says in verse 13, rejoice in as much as you participate in suffering. Uh, and that's not, a, that's not an uncommon idea. Here's a, here it is in the Bible. Psalm 5, Old Testament, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. James, the apostle, uh, the the brother of Jesus, writes, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet all kinds of trials. Or the Apostle Paul in his letter to Romans. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. This is such a repeating theme of the Bible. When it talks about suffering, its its primary word is not endure. Of course, there's moments. I mean, commit to doing good is a sense of endurance, but that's not the primary dynamic of how a follower of Christ meets suffering. Actually, the primary dynamic of someone who follows God is someone who rejoices in suffering, rejoices in it. Finds the capacity to find joy in the midst of hardship. Now that that is challenging, isn't it? And how do you do that? Well, when you think about the two pictures that I painted for you that were emerging from the passage, God is judge and God is creator, they're not actually Christian visions of God. You know, if you think about it, I mean you could you could be a Muslim, and maybe you have some Muslim friends who would agree with you: God is creator and God is judge. That's not a Christian vision of God. That's just a, in fact, I, I think there's people who would not even consider them religious, but would accept those two concepts God is judge and God is, God is created, God is judge. No, no. There's a third picture, isn't there, that emerges out of this? Look at verse 13. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. There's a third picture of God that's at the heart of what it means to know the God of the Bible, and that is God who suffers in Christ. The suffering God, the God who goes to the cross... And actually, I think this is the key. We've been saying it over and over again. Ben said it in the kids' talk. We've been saying it every week. And one of the key messages that we see emerge in 1 Peter is this. If you want to live a life the way God wants you to, Christ has to be at the centre. Not just God, not some kind of deistic vision, not just some sense of the divine. Because there's lots of people in our life who believe in the divine. But actually, if you want to live the way the Bible talks about, if you want to have a life that's shaped and responds the way the Bible is calling us to respond, your understanding, my understanding of God, must actually be shaped around Jesus Christ. Because Jesus brings a sharpness to our understanding of God that then flows out and impacts the rest of our life. You want to suffer well, you need to know God well. But you want to know God well, you need to know Christ well. And to know Christ is to know his sufferings. And you see how it changes the way we think about suffering, because first of all, God is not calling you to suffer in a way that he has been unwilling to suffer. When we look at Jesus Christ on the cross, we meet someone who suffered more than you will ever suffer. I mean, he's truly innocent, he suffers. Who of us can ever say that we're truly innocent in a moment of suffering? But he's truly innocent he calls you to suffer in a way that you will he 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 suffers in a way that he will never call you to suffer he is the prime example of suffering but even more than that the bible keeps telling us he doesn't just suffer as an example go and be like jesus he ultimately suffers for us he suffers for us think about the malchus story you know peter he starts that evening as one of the victims one of the oppressed and in that moment, as he slices off his ear, he moves from being the oppressed to the oppressor, doesn't he? And actually, in that garden, up until that moment, there, there were no criminals on Peter's side. But after that moment, Peter is a legitimate criminal. If anyone should go away in chains at that moment, it's Peter. Isn't it? Peter is the one who's, who needs... He has some kind of crime he needs to answer for in that moment. But of course, Jesus takes the chains. He heals Malchus. And what Peter comes to understand is he's not just protecting Malchus. He's actually protecting Peter. Because he's taking Peter's chains at that moment and walking off into the dark. And the wonder of having Christ at the center of your life is that God is not just saying, suffer like me. He's saying, I have suffered for you. I have suffered for you to deal with the deepest issues that lie at your heart, the things that when you're put in the pressure and in the moment of suffering may not result in everything that you're pleased with. God has died for those moments. He has suffered for those moments. He has paid for those moments. Now, as I finish, I just want to add another reflection about suffering in our culture. There's one time when suffering is is deemed worthy. It's when you suffer for someone you love, right? Right? Stuff for someone you love. Like, think about all the movies that we watch. Like, the hero dying for his or her beloved is like, is a great little moment of climax, isn't it? It's a great resolution to the story. I'll tell you a great example. Don't read this as a sign of my movie taste, but the, but, but the movie Titanic, right? right? It's a fairly B grade film. That's a pretty good ending, right? Main character dot Sorry to wreck it for you. It was written 22 years ago. The main character, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he dies. Right there, there, they are out in the ocean. Rose is on the plank of wood. Leo's in the water. Suddenly, he freezes. Eventually, because it's the Arctic, and his head plops down. And there he is. He's gone into the abyss. There's tears. You know, there's sadness. There's feels. It's a resolution. Now, what's interesting is after the movie, all these people. They, they plotted the piece of wood. They worked out, actually, Leo didn't need to die. Have you seen this, this graphic? <laughs> Someone worked it out. Like in the top top left, sorry, top right corner for you, uh, There there is. That's the original setting. right? But look, actually, they worked out Leo could fit on that piece of wood. <laughs> they did a Mythbusters episode on this, actually. It's true, they actually worked out as plausible. Leo could have survived on that wood. Now, here's what was really interesting. This just kept doing the rounds, right? The movie was in like 1998 or whatever like that. It just did the rounds for like nearly 20 years. Eventually, in 2017, James Cameron, who's the producer and director of the film, was fed up of it. He issued a statement about this. He said, he said, the ending would have been meaningless if he didn't die. He said either he was going to drown or he's going to cop it from a smokestack. But either way, he needed to die. He needed to die. And the reason is, of course, because there's, there's, a, there's a sense of nobility, isn't there, about giving up your life for someone who loves you. right? Now, Peter and the Bible's constant entreaty to our life of sacrifice is this. When we are invited to sacrifice for the Lord, we are invited into this wonderful divine love relationship where the Son of God has already given himself for you. You see, you're not called to sacrifice just because God is creator and says, you must do this. You're not called to sacrifice because God says, this will just benefit you, although it probably will in the long run, in some extraordinary way. No, no, you're called to sacrifice in part because God is calling you into this wonderful divine love relationship. And here's what the Apostle John says. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is not calling you to anything which he has not already been willing to do for you. He's calling you into a deep relationship with him because he loves you. He loves you. And all he's asking to do is reciprocate that love. Would you join him? Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful love for us. Lord, we pray that as we dwell and marvel and wonder at his extraordinary sacrifice for us, our heart to be refreshed, be emboldened, be willing to commit to doing good rather than simply minimizing our suffering and sacrifice. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was wholly committed to doing the good that we needed. Please reassure us, fill us, shape us, make us more like the Lord Jesus in light of what the Lord Jesus has made us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.